Ah, strange days indeed. Plenty of talk on the radio. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. What are the things you're looking forward to doing that you mightn't have done in the last year or two? Just seeing a bit of buzz about the place and yeah. a bit of life and activity. Because there were times, and particularly during the first lockdown, it was scary being in town where there was no one about. When I went to audition, I was in so much pain. I just made the quick decision that, you know what, he's going to be an angry Irishman. man. <laughs> a proper British man. For, I had a thing about Thriller, the start of the Michael Jackson song, uh, where I would do a version of the version Thriller, because uh, it's a Thriller, Thriller night, because no one's going to escape the beast with protein spikes and I was oh, very happy with protein spikes as a joke that only existed for one weekend that joke and then disappeared well there was no doubt about it we were waking up to very new feelings after nearly two long years the peeling back of restrictions on the cards and a sense of hope and caution in the air Neffet has told the government that it supports the lifting of almost all COVID restrictions. And because it didn't specify any timeline, the Cabinet will decide on the speed at which this will happen. On the brink of freedom, that's the lead headline in today's Irish Daily Mail, and green light to end COVID rules in the Irish Examiner. And if you're still grappling with this morning's news, you're not alone. Oh, figures are dropping. Everybody back in the swimming pool. Put everyone back in the swimming pool. We're in a week or two. Those numbers are going to rise again. Mixed emotions, I think. Don't know whether to... Probably stuff won't change for a while. Yeah. I don't think it'll be straight back into, oh, we can do it, let's just go do it. Today is a good day for, for hospitality. And it's now over to the government to say when we can actually open. We believe today is the day. Adrian Cummins there. And Ryan Tuberty was also musing over events in the morning. This is uh, an extraordinary day. Uh, first time in pretty much two years that we can lift our heads a bit out of the sand and emerge from the shadows and embrace a new sense of freedom um, and a new sense of hope because it's in the air, I promise you. When you walk out today, you'll you'll feel it. Uh, something has changed and I think it's all for the better. I say that with a tinge of uh, sadness because it's a bittersweet day um, and I say that because it's been two very long years uh, for for people um, and not everyone has come out of this or uh, has, uh, is emerging from this uh, the same as when we went into this so there are people around us uh, maybe sitting beside you now uh, who aren't the same as they were a couple of years ago because it's been challenging I'm not trying to put a downer on it I'm just saying that this is a beautiful day but it's a day that has a lot going on. This is a complicated day uh, for the future as well, in the immediate term at least. And there are people today who are saying, yeah, I'm thrilled, it's great, there's freedom in the air, but I don't have my mother or my grandmother or my father or my grandfather or my brother or my sister And uh, because we lost good people. So, as I say, I'm just qualifying the joy with a sense of respect for not only people who aren't with us now, but for people who are feeling lost today um, and, and, and hoping that the light will come and get you out uh, the other side. So we'll, we are out the, out the other side as good as, let's face it. But we do have to tread carefully in terms of uh, the bit of minding, I think, uh, ultimately. So let us march forward uh, together and in a, with a sense of uh, happiness and relief and reflection and because this is, uh, as I say, it's an extraordinary day. At six o'clock tonight, the Taoiseach will 
come down those steps I spoke about yesterday, um, hopefully bounce down for the first time uh, in two years with, with great news. I mean, people are quite taken aback by the speed with which the restrictions are lifting um, and taken aback for, 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 for good reasons uh, because we were expecting a much slower departure. I think Adrian Cummins is right. I think they should lift it as of nine o'clock tonight. I mean, if we're out, you're out. And uh, those people working in the bars, I mean, the government have said, and I know I'm not really buying this one, and, and it's not a criticism, it's, it's, it's comment. We need to give them time. They're ready. Um, they'll tell you that. They're ready. And those that aren't, aren't going to say, well, what about us? Now, the staff will stay and the people will come and shop. So let them off. And you say, what's the hurry? Two years is a long wait. So it's time. Keep it going. And I hope they make that decision. Oh, if nothing else, as a reward... <laughs> to the people who have suffered in these industries and say no at the first sign of it why wait till Wednesday when it's it's you know give it three days it's no, it makes no sense so uh, hopefully that's one of the things that'll happen it's, it's pretty small for some people probably don't care about that but a lot of people really do um, so here we are uh, January 21st uh, 2022 and with the uh, spring uh, coming down the tracks you can it's almost like the pathetic fallacy isn't it the the good, the, the brighter days, the good weather, it, it, it all filled, fits in with the narrative of what's happening. So here's hoping, right? And, and even I, I posted this these sentiments on Instagram earlier on as I was walking through the campus and I got a lot of messages from people who feel relieved but, but overwhelmed because in a way we're looking at this now saying, what happened? How am I? How are we? What the hell happened? You know, some families were split up in terms of vaccination rows and masking rows and you know there were little micro civil wars happening around the place we need to heal that stuff now you know everyone reacted differently to this um, and hopefully we can keep it together and maybe reconcile and say okay look we were all a bit fraught it was all a bit heavy here's the hand of friendship put it there you know let's let's come through this Ryan Tuberty there then later Brian O'Connell was on the streets of Cork good news most restrictions are to go what did you think? Were you happy enough with it? Oh, very happy with it. Yeah. At last. At last. At long last. It's been a long two it's years. It's been a very long two years. And people will be glad to get back to some form of normality. Some mask wearing, it seems, will remain, but the COVID yes. certs are likely to be gone. Yes, so I believe. What do you yeah. think of that? I'd be very glad the masks would stay. I would, really. What are the things you look forward to doing that maybe you missed out on in the last two years? Um... I would like to be able to meet up with people on a regular basis, as I normally did, which all that was postponed. But would like to be able to move around more and not be fearful. Hopefully people will be careful as well. I think it's good. Hopefully the country will be back to normal. And I think we've done very well so far. You'd be happy enough going in places now, not having to show your cert? Yeah, I suppose we have to at this stage, yeah. The, the professionals have done a good job. The doctors have done a good job. Uh, the government have done their best. What are the things you're looking forward to doing that you mightn't have done in the last year or two? Just seeing a bit of buzz about the place and yeah. a bit of life and activity. Because there were times, and particularly during the first lockdown, it was scary being in town where there was no one about. Everybody's down, it's brought in the country, came up a bit, you know. Shops opened up, pubs opened up, restaurants opened up. Fantastic news. What's the thing you're looking forward to doing? To go for a late night point, to be honest. Eight o'clock, no good. You're going home there at eight o'clock and you're half drunk and... You know, if it was more time, everybody can see you going home and drunk at eight o'clock. 
You know what I mean? Your neighbours be watching, everybody be watching. <laughs> so, without the God, it works out. That's all we can only hope. And you, you're confident, feel safe enough now going in somewhere not showing your COVID cert? But it always carry me so overcooked anyway, but see, that's the bailable, you know what I mean? I think everybody just should stay. Do you think we should still we'll show it? For not a while at least. Three weeks time, four weeks time, we know what's going to happen again. Do you feel now this is it, or do you always have that little worry to back no, your well, mind? It'll be there for a while yet, I think. Yeah. Like, we can be wearing masks for another two or three years. So, do you think government now today should let you have that lay point tonight? They should, they should. Then Claire Byrne spoke to Kevin Doyle of independent.ie. So, I think this NEF advice and letter went quite a bit further than most would have expected. Was there surprise at government level? Yeah, I think NEF would never fail to surprise. Um, usually it's bad news when they, when they land these things on government. But I think there was a little bit of surprise last night that it went as far as it did and has effectively given ministers carte blanche today to make up the rules um, themselves. So it's not as prescriptive as it has been in the past. It'll really, it really allows ministers kind of plot their way out of this. Um, and I think they're very happy with that, to be honest, um, because as, as my colleague Philip Ryan was writing earlier in the week, that. There, we did see an, a lot of commentary um, from the cabinet this week around the next steps. And there was this idea that they were trying to kind of back Neffet into a corner so that they couldn't uh, stall the reopening. Um, Neffet actually went the other direction. And I suppose we were told all along, Claire, that this wouldn't end with a big bang. But this certainly feels like the closest thing to a big bang. Then Claire spoke to GP Dr Yvonne Williams. We've spoken so many times over the last two years as we've gone through all of this. How do you feel this morning about the news last night? Good morning, Claire. Well, it's lovely to be speaking with a bit of positivity and some good news coming at the start of the year. So I welcome this. I suppose we welcome it cautiously, but I think it will give people a boost. And it's been a tough couple of weeks for, for everybody. I'm conscious of the fact, I suppose, there are people in ICU at the moment with Omicron and, and you know, hundreds of patients in hospital. Um, and they have families listening, maybe listening this morning. So it's not a mild disease for everybody. And we do need to proceed cautiously. But I think this is good news. We can start to move forward. Yeah, I'm just looking at a message I have here on my screen from Laura in Tipperary. While many will rejoice this evening, I'm utterly terrified at what will be announced. As an immunocompromised person, I have little or no immunity having received three vaccines because of the medication that I'm on. And Laura says she'll be reverting back into the cocoon. And that will be true for quite an amount of people today. Absolutely, it will be. And for, I suppose, every 10 people that are, are really happy, you're going to have a cohort of people who are who are nervous, who are afraid and who are anxious because they are reassured by the fact that you have to show a cert and that people, you know, have to be vaccinated um, to be eating indoors or dining indoors. I, I think they're not going to get, you know, get rid of those certs immediately. And hopefully, you know, for that lady listening, that by the time those certs are phased out, which might be March, the end of March, April, that almost everybody will either have had Omicron or will be vaccinated and boosted because it's it's so prevalent in the community that if you haven't been vaccinated, you're, you're definitely okay. going to get it if you're mingling. And what else would you like to see retained now, the measures that you think we should keep for the next while? I think the masks are here to stay when you're in, in busy, crowded places. But I, I do have concerns about, about children. I, I know they're quite high levels at the moment in school, but they won't remain as high because, again, children who aren't vaccinated are probably going to get it and get mild disease. I think for secondary school students, it, it's going to be very hard to explain to teenagers why they can't 
you know, take their masks off and, and, and mix freely and why there's still pods if you can walk past a pub and see adults sitting at a table for hours, you know, chatting and eating and drinking. So the children need to be considered for their, their emotional and psychological well-being, you know, to, to read someone's facial expression, to know, you know, what your teacher is thinking or for teachers to see how children are reacting in the class. I know from talking to teachers, it's, it's really difficult with, without the masks. A lot of schools haven't had their canteens open, so children aren't going in in the morning and, and getting breakfast or they're not able to eat hot food at lunchtime. Um, they're changing in different areas. Some schools haven't got their lockers accessible, so children are carrying really heavy bags. We're seeing kids with back pain and neck pain because of that. So those need to be taken into consideration so our children can have as normal a school life as possible after what's been a really tough two years for them as well. Then Claire spoke to Pat Crotty, owner of Paris, Texas Bar in Kilkenny. Really, yeah. It's, it's, we've had so many false dawns and even ones where we were sort of one step in the right direction and then knocked back again. So today looks like being one where we can actually really look forward with, with some degree of optimism. Some people will be very cautious still. They'll be nervous about going into a pub or a restaurant and, and going up to the bar. I mean, do, how do you think you'll overcome that? Um, I think we will still have to be as careful as we were for, for like our staff, I can imagine, are going to wear masks for some time. Um, we built customer confidence by by following the rules as best we could. And we're not just going to throw the baby out with the bathwater because there is nervousness. And like I've, I've been meeting customers even in the last week who, who are smiling at me, telling me it's my first time out in two years. I mean, it's hard to imagine there are still people who, who have taken everything to heart in that to that degree. And they're going to be able to start to relax and enjoy themselves again. But I agree with you entirely, they will be careful and there will be nervousness and it isn't just a matter of just uh, throw open the, the, the doors and, and free for all. We, just, we all need to, to be, be aware that there is still a degree of fear and a degree of apprehension out there. Pat Grotti from Today with Claire Byrne. Then later on the news at one with Brian Dobson, Dr David Nabarro of the WHO. Well, Ireland is one of a number of countries easing COVID-19 restrictions at the moment. But despite the optimism, the World Health Organization has warned this week that the pandemic is nowhere near over and that more bumps in the road may still occur. We've been speaking to Dr David Nabarro, WHO Special Envoy on COVID-19, about the planned reopening here. In most countries right now, there is a really urgent effort to try to work out just how much it's possible to remove some of the restrictions that were put in place to reduce the spread of the virus. On the one hand, governments are really keen to help people get back to some measure of social and economic activity that's familiar to them, that sense of going back to normal. At the same time, no government wants to move too quickly and end up with an unexpected a surge of cases. Well, what's useful, Brian, is that actually many countries in Western Europe are trying to make this decision at about the same time using pretty similar data. And the, the big question for each government is just how quickly do you go about doing this? I noticed that the change in Ireland is likely to be phased I understand that the Chief Medical Officer, Dr Tony Hullohan, sent a letter to the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, setting out the logic for perhaps getting hospitality back to normal opening hours and uh, perhaps a reduction in the use of digital passes. But at the same time, mask wearing in certain environments, including public transport and shops, is likely to be retained 
for the time being. And when I read that, I am really rather happy. I mean, this virus is still moving around in societies. Actually, it's moving around faster than ever. And it's still causing quite a lot of illness. So I would prefer to see a phased approach, if that's possible. I'm not in a political position, so I don't know what the limitations are. But it makes sense to me that we continue to treat this virus with respect and that we also do everything possible to protect people who might perhaps get severely ill as a result of infection mm. from doing so. So can, phased approach, please. Can we say, though, Dr Navarro, based on what we know at this stage about the Omicron variant, that in, in populations where there is a high level of vaccination and booster shots even have been delivered, can, can, can you say with confidence that it's, for the most part, a mild disease? So absolutely not using the word mild. I mean, what does mild mean? It, it means to people that it's just not very important. And nobody in the World Health Organization is taking that position right now. I think your, your uh, caveat that in populations with high levels of immunity because of past infection or because of immunization, the impact of the Omicron variant appears to be less severe than it is in populations with less immunity. But look, let's try very hard to be clear with people. The virus is still a really dangerous virus. Even the Omicron variant can create some difficult situations for people. So I'd really prefer not to see anybody using language to suggest this is mild until we really know the story. Mm. And I personally, do not feel confident that I can say to people in Ireland, that I can say to the officials in government who are charged with trying to make the case for changes, I just can't say to them with a clear conscience, this is a mild disease. It's not. It's a worrisome disease, and it's still worrisome even with Omicron. And it's worrisome because it's so massively transmissible, and it's worrisome because it does appear to break through the protection to a degree mm -hmm. offered by past immunisation. So everybody, be careful. You've done so much in Ireland for so long, don't let's endanger it by going too far too quickly. Dr David Navarro from the News at One with Brian Dobson. And in the morning, actor Glenn Keough. It's a small world. After Ryan saw Glenn making an appearance in the sitcom Curb Your Enthusiasm, the pair met on air to talk about acting, the cutting room floor and Larry David. There I was uh, watching one of my favourite comedy programmes on television, Curb Your Enthusiasm with uh, Larry David. If you haven't watched it, great. So he's a curmudgeon, uh, a misanthrope who goes around and stuff happens to him that's really annoying and people hop in queues and... Whatever it might be, it, 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 he just gets perpetually irritated by everything. And I see this uh, guy coming on with with his proper Dublin accent, like he's not hiding it or trying to put on some fake American accent. Whatever. Like, Who's this guy? Turns out his name's Glenn Kyo. And then Glenn got in touch with me on Instagram to say, "Here, the sisters heard you talking about me on the radio. Said, great, great, great." He said, like, "Let's have a chat." And and he's in California. He's in the United States, and he's on the phone now. Glenn, good morning. Good morning, Ryan. How are you? Happy Friday from happy uh, Los Angeles. Yeah, from LA. Good man. It, it, it's a good day in Ireland. I hope it's a good day in the United States, even if it's early in the morning. But uh, congratulations on your, yeah. your, your curb success. I, I'm, I'm intrigued to hear a bit about you. Tell us about yourself. Thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Look, I've been over here for 15 years, born in 
raised in uh, Newtown Park on Black Rock, and then uh, moved down to Australia in my mid-20s. And I uh, was down there, started acting down there. I was actually an accountant in Ireland, believe it or not, <laughs> CPA for my sins, uh, but then I grew a personality and got out of that game uh, into, into the world of acting when I was in Australia. And then from down there, I was lucky enough to win a green card in the lottery to move out to the US and, and give it a give it a go after I'd, I'd kind of done my education and in, uh, in the Actors Workshop and the Conservatory down in Brisbane, Australia, and then moved out here 15 years ago and just been uh, hacking away at it since. Yeah, living in Los Angeles and enjoying the lifestyle. So give us a list off the, the uh, TV shows we'll know that you'd have a, a part in, regardless of the size of the role. Name drop away there, yeah. liberally. Yeah, I've done, I've done a few. Uh, Sons of Arky is a, is, a, is a pretty big one. Criminal Minds, NCIS, Ray Donovan, um, Agents of Shields, show called Scorpion. I was on Magnum out in uh, Hawaii there uh, late last year. And then uh, I was in the... Uh, I was in... When I, when I say I was in, <laughs> I made a, a fleeting voice appearance in the latest Spider-Man. My footage didn't make it, but uh, it's good to be part of that juggernaut. And then uh, I was in the Transformers movie before that, so... You know, I've, I've I've been lucky enough to walk Ryan. Yeah, uh, I've been uh, you know I've been chipping away at it out here, and uh, yeah, I've been I've been lucky to get some work. We'll, we'll get to Curb in a moment, but the Spider-Man film sure. is is so big. What, what happened? You, they, you you did film stuff on camera, but you, and yet you're still in the film. Yeah. What, what, what happened? Yeah, look, they sh- they they uh, they flew me out to uh, Atlanta, and I shot out there for for a week uh, playing a British reporter, a roving reporter on the scene, and we shot the footage. It was great. And, you know, I expected to be in it, but when I went to the premiere and sat down with my popcorn, I didn't appear on screen, but I heard my voice. So I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm in the movie per se, but just not my ugly mug didn't make the cut, you know. But uh, happy to be part of it. Stick, you know? it, stick it on the CV. It's, 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 it all counts. It all counts. And Glenn explained the unusual way Larry David works. Yeah, you know, Larry David, the, the writer, creator, and the star of it, he wrote and created Seinfeld, right? So. Uh, hugely successful. It's a, it's a big show out here. It airs on HBO and, and Hulu. And um, I hadn't actually watched the show, to be totally honest with you. It's been on the air. This is season 11, but mm. it was on for 10 years and then they took a break for a few years and then came back. And and uh, I'd heard of it, but I hadn't watched it. And then an audition came through last year um, from my agents to, uh, you know, to put myself on tape because we, we record on tape. Now there's no in-person auditions. And, and uh, they sent me a scenario and I played out, they were looking for a, a prim and proper British prop master, you know, and I'll be honest with you, I went snowboarding the day before, first time ever snowboarding, if you've ever had the pleasure. No. Yeah, you know, I didn't take any lessons, like a typical paddy, went down the slopes, almost bruised every bone and, and muscle in my body from my toes to my ears, and when I went to audition, I was in so much pain, I just made the quick decision that, you know what, uh, He's going to be an angry Irishman from a proper British man. So I put myself on tape and then, I, you know, they cast me and it was great. And like I say, it's unscripted. They give you a scenario. You go in, for example, you know, Mike Carter, Stan, mm. approaches Larry to complain about the young actor on the show. And then you play it out. It's pure improv and, and you do a new take each time. You know, and Larry was fantastic to work with. And, you know, each time it just gave him a new, a, a new take. He kept laughing in my face, kept telling me to do the same thing. You know, it's because it's on HBO and Hulu. You know, you, you, you can uh, yeah. you can drop a couple of uh, of cu- courses here and there. So I took liberty with that, 
you know, so probably not one to, for the mammy to watch, but <laughs> fantastic experience. Like it was, it was a laugh. You know, oh, you're great. You're, you're great in it, Glenn. I have to say, and and you're, and, and love, I love, I love how the you curse like a proper Irish man. It's not like Americanized. <laughs> you know what I mean? It looked like I was. I felt like I was looking at a fellow who was really annoyed, <laughs> properly. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we've all worked with people like that in all walks of life, Ryan. So I, I, <laughs> I pulled from previous work experiences to. Uh, to portray that character, but yeah, it was look, it was great banter, and there was no holes barred. They, they let me play it exactly as I wanted to. There was great collaboration in there. Worked with an actor called John Rudnitsky, who was on um, SNL out here for a season. He was fantastic. He played young Larry. Yes. And then you know Ted Ted Danson was on it. Tracy Ullman, which was well, Larry was fantastic to work with. It was just it was just a joy, you know. And uh, hopefully they bring me back. Yeah, is, is Larry David? Is he a nice fella? Pleasant off air on air? Yes. Yeah, he was lovely. You know, we shot out obviously during COVID times, and he 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 had COVID last year, I believe. So, you know, when we weren't live, he was he was masked up and kind of keeping his distance from people, and I totally get that. But when once we we played and, and we went live, like I said, it's unscripted. You don't rehearse. You yeah. go straight into it. He just kind of handed the microphone over to me to to run with it. Okay. You know, and the biggest challenge was him just cracking up. And what I was saying, he was trying to wrap his head around it, you know, as to where are you coming from? You know, I wasn't familiar with any of the Irish terms like crack or banter or, or what have you. And I had to kind of explain that to him off set <laughs> and then go back into it again, you know. But yeah. he was, he's a, he's a lovely guy. And look, he's hugely successful in the show. The show is fantastic. Like, a, yeah. I, I'm a big fan now, not just because I'm in the show, but... You know, it is. It's brilliant. Like, yeah. they, there's some brilliant characters on that show. So let's hear a bit of Glenn with Larry David. So here, I'm going to play a tiny clip of, of this is you and Larry. And uh, you sure. know, Larry's at the, doing this thing in this particular episode where when somebody's boring and we start singing the music like in the Oscars to try and get them to stop. Uh, <laughs> and yes, you're yes, telling a yes. story that you've obviously outlived about an uncle in Gory or whatever. We'll have a yeah. listen to see it. And in case you hear the humming, Larry's bored. My uncle Michael wanted to say hello. He used to work for you on Seinfeld. He was oh, a transport guy. Really? For a couple of months, yeah. How's, uh, how's he doing? He's doing okay. He's, he's, he's back in Ireland. His grandfather passed away, so uh-huh. Michael had to go back and take care of the family yeah, farm, sure. you know, so he went back. He's got about 60 acres of land, about 65 miles outside Dublin, a place called Gory. It's got a ton of cattle, sheep dogs. You know, he's a prize-winning potato grower now. Would you believe that? He's doing a fantastic yeah. job. He's selling them all over Europe now. He's making really good coins, you know. But, I, I, but Michael's not around anymore, but I, I, he's working like a Trojan and, he, and he's very grateful for what you did for him and he's, you know, just wanted me to say hello to you. So, anyway. <laughs> so you, you, that's a great bit of riffing from you, in fairness to you, Glenn. You see, you had to riff and, yeah. and bore him to tears about your uncle. Yeah. That's great. That was actually the toughest, that was the toughest scene to shoot, Ryan, yeah, because they asked me deliberately to bore him to tears to <laughs> come out with a, a boring story. And, and the previous take, that was the second take, the previous take I mentioned to you that my uncle, or my uncle Michael, from Gory, you know, he'd he'd got gout in his leg and lost his left leg, and Larry cracked up at that. And he said, "No, you gotta to, to keep in the scene what we're trying to do here. You gotta come up with something boring." And I'm like, "Jesus, on the spot, what do you, what kind of a story do you tell that's boring?" So that's that's why I just yeah. came up with this uncle that used to work in Seinfeld, whatever. And uh, but again, it was you know. From a take like that, they'd give me another 10, 15 seconds walk-off set, come on with something fresh and new, which which is, you know, just a joy. I've done a bit of improv in the background, so yeah. it was uh, it, it, it was great, man. Len Kyo from The Ryan Tuberty Show. 
and like a bat out of hell, he was gone. Meatloaf, R.I.P. Claire Byrne was talking to concert promoter Pat Egan about his memories of Meatloaf. It was the 13th of June 1982, which is almost 40 years. It's hard to believe that uh, it's such a long time ago. It seems in ways like yesterday, but uh, I'm sad that we're losing so many of our great music stars as well. It was uh, it was an eventful uh, visit. He arrived in Dublin on a Saturday morning and uh, was staying in the old Jury's Hotel where he had a suite. And one of the things that stands out most in my mind from the, not so much from the show, was from his time in Jury's Hotel, where over the two nights he ran up a bill of thirty one thousand three hundred quid on room service, which right. the hotel was aghast at at the time. I can remember well. He also had a bit of a domestic uh, with his wife. Uh, while he was in the suite, and uh, she she stormed out, and he threw a teapot out the window at her, uh, and I remember the hotel being very upset about it. In terms of the gig, it was um, it wasn't the success we'd hoped for. We'd had Bob Marley just a year or two before, and we'd had status quo, and both had done well into the twenty thousands for their uh, show meatloaf. Yeah. Uh, Maybe because he'd been in the North uh, previous to coming here, he only did around thirteen or 14,000 people. So we didn't make uh, a lot of money, uh, but um, it went off mm-hmm. well, and it was uh, it was another kind of first for, for us in terms of doing shows. Well, look, he had a bit of a wild man reputation. There's no denying that. In fact, he, he played off it, didn't he? And uh, we, we know yeah. from the announcement this morning that his wife was with him when he died, so obviously any issues were resolved, Pat. Did you get to spend much time with him, or what were your impressions no, of him? No, not necessarily. When they when the act comes in, you kind of meet them, and then they'd go to their hotel. You might meet them again before they go on stage at the at the venue, and then sometimes there'll be a, an after party or a, a visit to the uh, hotel green room or whatever. And uh, he was a, a big, larger than life guy. I remember remember him quite well. He was managed at that time by a former husband of Diana Ross. And uh, he took over the room when he came. He was a big, as I said, jovial, happy-go-lucky guy. And uh, I got on with him quite well. He was happy with the show. And uh, that's pretty much um, how it generally goes. So the hotel incidents were the only kind of uh, off the... uh, off the record kind of things that happened while he was here. And then Claire spoke to Dave Fanning about his memories of Meatloaf. Dave, I know you met um, Meatloaf a couple of times. You you interviewed him. I, I met him as well. He really, that larger than life character, characterisation of him suits him very well. Full of energy. Always in good form, I would have thought as well. 100%. The same on stage as he was in a room. He was one of the nicest guys to compete in some ways. I mean, to be honest, his music, I don't get it, never did. I mean, the thing is, like, he sold so many records, about 65 million albums altogether. Bat Out of Hell was so successful. I mean, Bat Out of Hell was turned down by every record company. And Todd Rundgren, a famous musician and, and, and kind of guitarist at the time, he came in and did a bit of production on it and helped Jim Steinman and himself do it. And then a small little in Cleveland took it up 
on sudden, forty-five, it's forty-five million. It still sells about two hundred and fifty thousand copies in the UK alone every year. Absolutely huge. Yeah. Sure. And I mean, also, can I just say that thing you threw out the window as well? They up. No, that's a different wife who was at his bedside. Ah, okay, okay, yeah. okay. Um, listen, I want to talk to you about something I, I mentioned earlier, and I was looking at this before we came on air. He seems to have played all over Ireland, like gigs yeah. in the strangest of places, the community centre in Moat, for example, all over places on the west of the Shannon he he must have felt he had a special special relationship with Ireland or p- people were particularly fond of him here well it's just that when things weren't going brilliantly for Meatloaf um, he went back to what he used to do all the time which was hustle 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 he was hair he was Jesus Christ Superstar he was Rocky Horror Picture Show he was anything that could get us there in terms like rock and roll yeah I'll do that Jim Steinman yeah let's write some songs and see what happens I'll do whatever you want me to do. Yeah. He, he, he did this thing. He came to one hand. I mean, like in the 80s, and like Pat's talking there about the 80s where he only got 12,000 or so at Daily Mountain. He should have got a lot more yeah. because his success in the 70s was so big. But the really funny thing about it is, is that in the 80s, like he even went down to, he was doing stand-up comedy in the UK with people like Hugh Laurie, Stephen Fry. Has tweeted this morning about the lovable guy that he was. He was frightening in one way, and yet absolutely one of the nicest guys you could ever meet. And he really is. I think he always wanted to impress. He always wanted to get on well with people. He was an only child, and he just he gave everything in an interview. He really did, one hundred and ten percent all the time. And that whole phrase that you'll hear all day now, larger than life. He really was, you know. Mm-hmm. And then you mentioned the movie career, and you know, moving on from the music when that started to settle down a bit for him. But he made a great success of the other things that he did. Well, I mean, he did a bunch of movies, actually. Like, he even did the Spice Girls movie. The biggest one for me was the 99 movie with Brad Pitt. He was very good in it, too, in Fight Club. Mm. And he'd, he'd, he'd do anything. I mean, he'd do anything for love, but he won't do that kind of stuff. I mean, some of his song titles were the best of all. <laughs> yeah. He just went to town on things. He even had one about his body falling apart there about two or three years ago. And he was still making music, still doing things. One of the problems was that he fell out pretty early with James Steinman, who was like the guy who did everything for him. He was his right-hand man. He did all the music and all the rest of it. And he fell out. And in 1995, Jim Steinman actually patented and trademarked the phrase bat out of hell and meatloaf went crazy. £50 million lawsuits flying all over the place. I mean, he always claimed, look, I get on with Jim. It's the lawyers that don't get on with the lawyers. Not really true. But anyway, and they always came back together. And also, it was like a sequel thing in Hollywood. I mean, Bat Out of Hell 5, I think, was finally released. <laughs> and and uh, also, the funniest one of all, this is the, like Bat Out of Hell 2. He said, let's do Bat Out of Hell 2. So he does. And the problem with it was, all the, even the musicians were going, seriously, how cheap can you get? This is just schlocky. This is terrible. And the funny thing is, it sold 15 million copies in about three weeks. Listen, what about his health? I read a story this morning about him collapsing on stage. He attributed that to asthma, I think. He had quite a few health problems, didn't he? He did. He had a lot of health problems. I mean, Jim Steinman died last year. He had health problems as well. He had a lot of health problems. He, he was on a tour of Britain there once and he just stopped on stage after the second number and said, that's it, I'm finished forever. That was about 2007. As it was then, he actually did a big tour and did a lot of dates in Ireland. He came back in 2008. And there was all sorts of things you mentioned earlier on. I mean, he played in Carlo one night. I can't remember the full details. Something about the army had to be called in. I'm not sure what the reason was. Yeah, I was reading. I was reading about the gig in in Westmead that I referred to earlier, and he kept walking off stage because people were throwing up Doc Martens, cans of beer, lit yeah, cigarettes, right. and he he was walking up. But then when they called for Bat Out of Hell, he came back out and he sang that again. Then he kept telling them to stop throwing stuff and walking off. Of course, that riled the crowd up even more. But it sounds like it was a great night. 
Well, no, one, yeah, a well, one. Yeah, that's, what, that's what we need. More of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, one of the things that's wrong with all of this is the fact that you know the, the record company people were so sort of together. They thought in uh, like the seventies and that. But they said, "Listen, there is no room for this. There is no genre called you know whatever it is he's doing. So we're not going to sign it." And did they make a mistake? As I say, forty-five million albums later. So that was one thing. He broke down a barrier and made a new kind of music. I mean, even recently, I've seen "We Will Rock You," which is the you know, jukebox musical of Queen. Now, I hated every second of it, but I mean, like, it was packed in the three arena for a few nights and everything. People love that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Bad Out of Hell means so much to so many people. Dave Fanning from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the afternoon, Ray Darcy was catching up with the busy life of comedian and TV presenter Dara O'Brien. Good afternoon to Dara O'Brien from daraobreen.com. <laughs> Hello, how are you? <laughs> I, I put that in there, just you know, get it out of it, darabreen.com, darabreen.com. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, it's never updated with new content or anything, so I wouldn't, it's, not, it's, not, it's not one of the great destinations of the web. No, so, but it, yeah. does, it does tell you where you're appearing. And it then, does, it'll do, it'll do that. Like, I mean, the dates are up to date and it's a, and I got, it's a nice poster for this tour, actually, quite good. <laughs> right. the, uh, but uh, the people should flock to see that. But, but the, you see, uh, today is an important day. For look, people is, like you, isn't it? It, it is, is a huge people. And generally, I'm, I look, I'm on the line just having to urge caution, all right? Just calm down, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> the pub will still be open at half eight and nine. So not everything has to be done at eight. It's, uh, it's exciting, isn't it? it and is. I can hear them generally. Every, everyone is just really, you know, has des- deserved this. You know, there's a sense of, you know, there's some some sense of, of a siege being lifted. But uh, particularly, yeah, if, for, for, for live acts, like the hospitality industry, that, that this could go back to normal. That'd be phenomenally good. That'd yeah, be great. Because I'm, I'm just looking here. Yours is the 14th of March, um, which would be around the anniversary of the beginning of it all. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and that day, for example, the 14th, I think, is, is that a... a the Cork Opera day? House. That's yeah. like supposed to be, that was supposed to be today. Oh, um, was it right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. but the but the I mean, as an enticing thing, I mean, the Cork Opera House is, is is grand, but they said, well, you could play it twice, half empty, before eight o'clock. <laughs> and you're going, wow, that sounds fantastic. And then I'd leave, I'd walk out to a completely shut down Cork. That'd be nothing could be more exciting than doing that. I could do that in Limerick and, and Rexford as well. That'd be lovely. So you said, no, thanks, but no thanks, lads. You're okay. Oh my God, it, I, the hits kept coming. I once they said. Look, half full, you go, okay, maybe we could accommodate doing two versions of the show. Half full before eight o'clock. Ah, now hang on. <laughs> this is getting, this is, how much worse could this be? Half full, but everyone has to be, we put them all in the Perspex Dome so they can't even hear you. I mean, it was just, <laughs> the conditions kept getting more unhelpful to the atmosphere. You'll have like, to do it actually from your hotel room. But like that, yeah, we, yeah, we'll be broadcast it to the people. Yes. We Zoom, it's all on Zoom. Zoom it's all on Zoom. Half full Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> you go, well, how could we, anyway, we but I have in the middle of the theatre. Oh, it's just put everyone's laptops out. It's oh. easy laugh now. That we, oh, that we have a it? sniff that it's over. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're like the kings now. We're like, oh, that's great. <laughs> oh my God, it's ludicrous. But because I also because I'd done two weekends of it back in the day, back in the days where COVID hit, came out at midnight. The uh, I did the two weekends <laughs> yeah. of it. Then it started good. to come out at eight o'clock instead. Eight o'clock. That was that was a sneaky move uh, to start making it early. <laughs> I mean, he's damning enough at midnight, but then to shift your shift your hours. The uh, so now it's decided to go away, and that's much better. But the 
um, because I even even then there's like it, it, I will sometimes remember all the jokes that apply to just that moment um, as we were doing the shows in just that moment. I mean, for I had a thing about Thriller, the side of the Michael Jackson song, uh, where I would do a version of the version of Thriller because uh, it's a Thriller Thriller night because uh, no one's going to escape the beast with protein spikes and I was oh, very happy with protein spikes as a, as a joke that only existed for one weekend that joke and then disappeared and given the week that was Ray asked Dara about British politics Boris Johnson right yes so, so uh, David Davis stood up and said for God's sake go he was quoting some guy who said the same thing to Neville Chamberlain he said, said to, to Chamberlain yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and he's trying to distract people here there and everywhere and he's having a cut at uh, the BBC and all sorts of things will, will he brazen it out again I think he will I right. genuinely think he will and I think there is there may be even a small part of Labour going Grant so hold on there you stay there for the two years um, I see, yes, so, yes. Yeah, rather than some, somebody else coming in and having a bounce and then uh, people thinking, well, that's that all solved. And so it probably would be better for Labour to, for Johnson to go in and then have to face the public. Uh, and, you know, especially as this recedes and Brexit appears more clear in terms of what it's meaning in terms of 17 mile tailbacks for trucks wanting to get into the EU and all this kind of stuff. The, uh, so that might be better to, no, look, sure, you're the architect of this. You hang around, which they've not done to yes. us. They, they have a tendency to, to, to head off um, May and Cameron did as well. No, hang around and, and uh, sure, look, go to the public. And see how that goes. And like, Starmer so is looking be... like a leader. Like, well, he, he's look, he's dry. That's the only thing. I know, he's, but no, but, he, no but the fact that he's, yeah. he's dry. He's not charismatic. He's, he's good head of hair. Man. He wears a suit well. <laughs> he does. I, he's, he's no, he's he's carved from. He looks like he's making teak or something. He's very. He's a very solid looking individual. Yeah, uh, but it. Uh, uh, yeah, he is. I suppose just a case of he, the two things that were they're characterising was that he is. Yes, he's a little dry, a little bit. Um, Barrister, not barristerial, but not in the kind of a, you know, kind of, you know, detailsy yes, kind of thing, yeah, which yeah. may be a very, very good thing, but can be unappealing. But he also has a terrible tendency to get, to get COVID. He was a demon <laughs> for the COVID. And How many times did he get it? Twice, right? He, had, he got it twice, but they also had isolation when you had to have isolation at least three other times. So he was, there's people who've, who've breathed with hardly a thing in the family and he's been in isolation Oh, repeatedly and it was like ah oh, come on now this is I mean Johnson only went into isolation like last week when he had to hide he, he like when nobody had to go into isolation here the rules were if you had the jabs you didn't have to go isolate but Johnson suddenly said no I need to isolate right when the party thing was at its worst have you been in his Johnson, company at all? Um, Johnson or Boris Johnson at all Johnson I I was at another end of or close to him on a train carriage once we nodded at each other during the Olympics that would be the extent of my my interaction and and you like on Mock the Week you've had a good old go at the Tories so maybe you're part of the reason that the Tories are having a good old go at the BBC you're well, in their, we, their we, sites. We might well be. Yeah. yeah, it is. I, you know, I mean, we're certainly um, would be. Yeah, we we would. They would claim we'd have a bias. I mean, we it's clearly powerless. The uh, because we all kind of went. What's this Brexit thing about? And it made zero difference to the vote. Like, but we, I suppose, yeah. But I would, if if and when Mock goes, it's more likely to go just because uh, it's been on for a while and the money will eventually run out. Uh, because that's going to happen to the BBC; they're going to yeah. run out of money. Uh, rather than you won't find me going. This is because of politics. That, no, no, yeah, you know, yeah. The, uh, it's 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 going to be. It'll, it'll be indirectly because of that. But I don't think it'll be. We've got to shut those guys up because they're, they're getting too close to the truth. Dara O'Brien from the radar. 
And in the morning, film editor Una Niganila was talking to Ryan Tuberty about working with Kenneth Branagh on his memoir film Belfast and their first project, Death on the Nile. We were working together actually on Death on the Nile uh, whenever the COVID restrictions began. I was over in England doing that with him. Yeah. And once the COVID restrictions came, the studio shut down. So I asked Ken, could I come back to my studio in Dublin, my home in Dublin in Medbrook? And uh, my husband and children were with me in England. They had moved over temporarily for Death on the Nile. So then we all came home to Dublin and I finished Death on the Nile at home in Dublin. And when I returned in June just to um, sort of officially lock off with Ken, he presented me this beautiful script and said, if it's your cup, I'd love you to cut it. And I saw the title Belfast and read it that night. And then immediately I, I emailed him that night just to say, wow, you know, I couldn't believe that he'd actually written it during lockdown so beautifully. He had captured the vernacular of the people of Northern Ireland, the humour, the pathos. I just thought it represented sort of my family, my dad's Pomona in County Tyrone. And I'm sure for loads of Irish people and actually people around the world have sort of said, they can recognise themselves in the humanity of his story. So I was just like, yes, please. I would love to work with you on this. Well, the reviews are in uh, this morning. The, pap- <laughs> the papers oh. are so... They're so they, the uh, Irish Independent, Paul Whittington, uh, gives it five stars this morning. I mean, there's uh, the Mail. I think I saw another five-star review in this morning. So uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's certainly um, impressing the critics. There's no question about that. So congratulations on that. Can, can you give us a, a, a nutshell for people who haven't seen it clearly? Uh, what, what, is, what is Belfast? So Belfast is a, a, really it's a memoir film and based on Ken's childhood. He was nine when they, his family left Belfast in 1969-1970. So the film is a portrait of his experience for that year of his life as his father, who was working in London, realised that the troubles were brewing and he needed to move his family to safety. But the mother, Katrina Belf, you know, she was crippled with not wanting to leave because Belfast was her home and her mm. community. So it's really a, a, an intimate story through the eyes of the child. So sometimes uh, we, we didn't um, focus too extensively on the details of the troubles because it's shown through the child's perspective. So that allowed us actually to focus on his biggest dilemma was how to sit beside the smart girl in the class, yeah. are you? H- how to be with his granny and pops who he loved so much. So it's really a celebration, I think, of the beautiful city of Belfast, the community of neighbours of all persuasions, mm. uh, because Catholics and Protestants were side by side. And the intimacy, I think, of the family who lived separate yet together, because granny and pops are a vital part of Buddy's life, but they lived down the road from him. And I think... That's what sort of chimed with me because I said to Ken, I'm Pi, you know, sometimes I'm commuting to London. I'm leaving the children at four in the morning Mm -hmm. and my parents live around the corner from us and Danny and Naomi would just see a run down to them. So I I think there was a lot of um, fabric of authenticity and truthfulness that he captured that probably resonates with many more people. You're right. It's the the end of childhood, the end of innocence in some ways explored in all of this. Um, Done in black and white, that beautiful monochrome, which which I absolutely adored because... Then you see Judy Dench sitting down watching a film in the, in the cinema yeah. and her glasses, you know, we're looking at a black and white audience and yet in her yeah. glasses are we see the reflection of the screen and it's colour. Yeah, and so that, uh, that was actually, that came very naturally because Ken had this idea of the beautiful velvety black and white. It's not the social realist black and white. It's actually quite a beautiful, yeah. deep, rich black and white. But yeah. Harris Amber Lucas was DOP. But he always wanted the cinema to be in colour. So we actually had three films, um, but we dropped one of them, The Great Escape, just due to the nature of 
editing, to, you know, the first cut was two hours, 20, so we refined it down. And then it meant that the theatre, which had been in black and white, we just thought, well, maybe that should be colour as well, because it's about what inspires the child. And then the little reflection in the glasses came very naturally, actually through a conversation with myself, Ken and Matt Glenn, of just thinking maybe Granny deserves that little motif, whether it's the fact that she also has... Uh, his grandmother, maybe she loved theatre, or maybe it was a barrier in the, you know, that she couldn't see through. There's many interpretations, but we just thought it was nice to give, give it to her. Yeah. I like to think it's because she also had the sort of poetic soul that Ken has. Yes. That maybe theatre was important to her, and that's why she was given that glimpse on her glasses. And Ryan asked Una about one of the magical moments of the film. I, I'm, I'm mocked Una over in TV, particularly by the, my toy show colleagues, because I'm always trying to... I, I love the transition from black and white to colour. Like, and I, obviously, The Wizard of Oz is the, is the, was the first... It's yeah. it, I, I remember watching The Wizard of Oz and seeing Kansas become Oz. And I, as I think about it talking to you, my mind is still blown by the childhood innocence of seeing that yeah. transition. And equally, when when the little lad, uh, uh, Buddy, uh, the young Kenneth Branagh character in Belfast, goes to the cinema, having had this kind of, he's kind of half seen the troubles in the background. He was yeah. he saw a riot over there. He's hearing his folks rowing about whether they should leave Belfast or not. And then they sit down and they watch Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And the car is going over the cliff and the wings, where are they going to come out? Is the car going to fly? The, because of the, all the black and white, the vividness of the colour is, it, like, it, it just... It's extraordinary. Oh, I couldn't. I was watching going, wow. And even the, the people in the, in the cinema, in, in, uh, on the film, are leaning forward w- with, leaning with forward, the car. Yeah. And then as the car <laughs> lifts off, they're leaning back again. Go, whoo, we're up. You know, yeah, the it's magic like of, yeah, it's like the magic. Yeah, it's like the magic of cinema, the escapism, the colour, the, the excitement of it all. Why, uh, and the shared experience in, 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 in yeah. you know. Uh, anyway. And, I, and you know what, I think, I, think, I think that's actually a really good point about the shared experience. Because obviously through COVID, all the cinemas were closing. And I had to film Misbehaviour that opened on March 13th, 2020 just as all the cinemas closed. So I think Ken also, he really, instinctively, cinema was a huge relief for him as a child. Mm. So to celebrate that, and actually I hope people do go to cinema to see this, because he used sometimes wide shots with the depth of field. So you know the scene when Buddy's on the outhouse talking to Pops about the girl Catherine, and Granny's at the back of the shot. She's way down through a window. So that on a big screen is going to be just joyous yeah. whereas on the little screen if it, came, you know, it, it will still look good but it's really beautiful on the big screen Una Niganila from The Ryan Tuberty Show And on the live line the grave of the family of Thomas Clark one of the signatories of the proclamation Before signature on the uh, proclamation 1916 106 years ago is Thomas Clark um, and uh, well, indeed, it's it's argued that he was the the original, so to speak, um, leader of the um, the first president, in effect, of the Irish Republic. Even though most people would think it was Powerick Pierce, but that's another day's uh, coddle. Martin Mooney, Martin. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Joe. You you contacted us. Why? It's the grave of the fam. Obviously, obviously, Thomas Clark is buried in Arbor Hill, yeah. but it's the grave of the family of Thomas Clark. Family, Joe, correct. Unmarked grave. Joe, this grave was brought to my attention by Andrew Woods, who lives nearby in Glasnevin. Andrew mm. is, is a Clark enthusiast and he identified the family okay. uh, to me. We obtained the coordinates and off we went. And there we mm-hmm. go. Lo and behold, 
Mary Clark from County Tipperary, James, an English soldier, married in 1857 from County Leitrim. They got married in Clonmel, and also in that grave is Hannah Clark. Hannah died in 1950. Uh, what's, 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 for me, what's important is that the role that Mary Clark and Hannah Clark played in, in the, uh, as Tom Clark was incarcerated mm. for 15 years oh, in what he describes as a living hell. Yeah. Uh, Mary wrote to Maud Gone. Uh, in 1995, thanking her for the financial support, thanking her for the campaign uh, to have Irish prisoners released from English jails. Hannah wrote to Amnesty uh, in 1996, Hannah mm-hmm. was 28 at the time, and she says uh, regarding poor Tom's condition, I'll quote from the book Tom Clark, Life, Liberty, Revolution. She said how deeply grieved and shocked it was to find such a terrible alteration for the worst in his appearance and his health is little short of being a complete wreck, pale, emaciated, mm-hmm. and generally broken. So Mary Clark, uh, she was 60, in her 60s when she wrote the Mod Gone in 1895. Mm-hmm. Hannah was 28. James would have died, James died in 1894. As a result, uh, Hannah lost a military pension, so poverty ensued. Mary, Mary's health failed. She broke down with the, um, the, the incarceration of her son. The conditions, as you said, the maddening silence, uh, sleep deprivation, intellectual mm-hmm. deprivation. So really, the, I feel that the Clark family need to be remembered in Glasnevin, John. And so it's an unmarked grave, but where where is it in Glasnevin? Uh, it's down past, as far as I know, the Saint. I think it's the Saint Bridget section. So it's on, it's on the main. There's there's Saint Paul's over the far side of the road. Yes. For the likes no, of Luke it's Kelly in the main section, Joe. Okay. It's down there. I'll tell you more or less up in the Voile Hill direction, at the back of the cemetery. Okay, and uh, what's uh, I know it's an obvious answer, but the, you've you've actually found the location. Yes. And is there any marking there? Any flowers? Nothing even? there, Joe. Uh, Andrew Woods done the search himself. He okay. found you can obtain the coordinates, and also with the help of of Glasnevin genealogy, they're more than helpful. Basically, Andrew came along with the coordinates. Both of us. And are the graves uh, either side? Are they marked? Uh, there's a grave behind that's marked. There's, there's several graves around that location, so you can you can kind of chop and change and get your. Uh, it's marked longitudinal mm. and latitudinal with, with letters and numbers, so so that's how you get your marks. They merge together okay. to get the exact location. Now, who owns the grave? Uh, I I don't know. I suspect the Clark family might own it, but there's another thing in that. There's a young child in there as well. I haven't got the details of that mm. young child. Uh, I suspect it's a Clark family grave. Definitely, uh, Glass Nevin genealogy would definitely help me out on that one to confirm that. Yeah, they've, they've, uh, they've, but but is is there any? Do we know any descendants of the family of Thomas Clark in Ireland, alive or not even in Ireland, but alive? I, Joe, as far as I know, Andrew Woods was in contact with a descendant of the Clark family. Uh, now to find that person. I haven't been in touch. I'm not aware of, of anybody. I'm on to your station today, Joe, just to highlight that once again in Unmark Grave that needs to be recognised. Considering, if I, if I might say, Joe, uh, Michael Collins was assassinated in 1922. Okay. Uh, one month before his assassination, uh, Mary passed away in 1922. Now that we're coming to the centenary of Michael Collins, would it be nice if we could just pencil in or do mm. a little marker for the, um, the Clark family? Just a little commemoration there, you see. Martin Mooney from the Live Line with Joe Duffy. 
And in the morning, reporter Evan O'Rourke was looking at the shortage of priests in the country from today with Claire Byrne. It's hardly a surprise to say that the number of priests available in parishes is falling and the amount of priests who are still serving course is an ageing group. And just to put some context on this, and I don't want to kind of blind you with numbers, but in 1970 there were 3,849 diocesan priests, close to 4,000. By 2019 figures, that had fallen to close to uh, 2,400. And the point was made to me that that's a pre-COVID figure and that the figure of current serving diocesan priests could be just under 2,000 now. Now, numbers, they're a little tricky to come by. There isn't a national database as such and some of the, or many of the figures that we have aren't compiled by age but there are estimates out there that the average age of diocesan priests now is 70 and to help out of course we hear all the different stories different responses such as priests coming from abroad to help out more lay people getting involved and Pope Francis has signalled that the church needs to develop roles beyond that ordained ministry and there's work being done by commission on that very issue. And to find out more about it you started by meeting up with Father Michael Collins in Dublin. What did he have to say? He was really interested on Claire, he says that the church as an organisation was originally intertwined with so many areas like the church buildings and the schools and healthcare. So here's a little flavour of that very long conversation I had with Father Michael and he started by discussing his own training and the numbers for him in Clonliffe back in the 1970s. When I went into Holy Cross College Clonliffe in 77, there was certainly over 90, I think 92 and 93. And there was usually between 10, 15 per class. So the numbers certainly have gone down. And I think, first of all, we're probably a victim of historical success because Catholic emancipation started in the middle of the 19th century. So there was a sudden building splurge and the church started building hospitals, orphanages, schools, churches, chapels, what have you. Nowadays, we've got all the infrastructure, we've got the buildings. So in a sense, what we're trying to do is serve all this huge infrastructure with less human resources. And in terms of priests, brothers, nuns, etc., those numbers are going down. And one of the fundamental things which has changed parish life over the last 30 or 40 years has been the unveiling of the clerical child abuse, which has destroyed the lives of so many children. And it's all down to a small amount of perpetrators, but nevertheless, the damage they did has been incalculable. And victims are living with this today. So the challenge now is to allow people to take their role and their part in looking after their own parishes. Is that extraordinary for you when you reflect back to where you were when you started? Well, yes, certainly consolation is to think that the church is 2,000 years old and has weathered all sorts of things. So I wouldn't be too worried about that, but it's not a good idea to see any organisation using old people and people who've gone way past their retirement date. That doesn't, doesn't make any sense. So there's only virtually parish priests or what they call administrators left. And they're battling away, trying to do a fairly difficult job, I would imagine, and the expectation of the people. So we've got to head into a new way of doing things. But I think definitely key is the people, uh, what we call the lay faithful, it's a lovely expression, that they then would run. But it's all been slipping away like sand from a cliff. And whether Ireland is a better, more inclusive, more loving, more embracing place is difficult to know. I don't know if we are or not, but certainly I think we can see the erosion of that structure as unnerving for a lot of people. Father Michael Collins speaking to reporter Evelyn O'Rourke from Today with Claire Byrne. And that's it for Playback Daily, so enjoy the weekend and mind yourself.